You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Today's episode of the Live Different Podcast is sponsored by Under 30 Experiences, our travel company for young people. We take groups of 21 to 35-year-olds on awesome adventures all across the world. Um, We have trips to Brazil, Machu Picchu, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Belize. Um, We go deep into the rainforest. We go up to Iceland, to the glaciers and the volcanoes, Ireland, um, Bali, all, all sorts of different places across the world with awesome groups of young people. If you're sick and tired of sitting at home, sitting in front of your desk, waiting for your coworkers to stop going to the boring happy hour after work and drinking their lives away, and you're tired of all of your friends doing boring things at home, probably going to the same bar and doing the same old shit, come on Under 30 Experiences. This is a great commercial. Really like this one. There, It's a candid community, um, and we go and have a really good time. And uh, there's no egos, divas, or complainers allowed. So check out under30experiences.com and come travel with us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I am your host, Matt Wilson, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Polar Explorer, Eric Larson. And as you guys know, if you've been a listener for a while, we like to interview people who are doing things outside of the normal realm of what an everyday person thinks is possible. And I think Eric is absolutely someone who embodies this. Uh, He has been a expedition guide, a dog musher, and has traveled to both, skied to both the North and South Poles, making him one of the very few Americans who have ever actually done that. Uh, He's had crazy expeditions in Antarctica. We're talking, you know, 750 mile ski traverses to uh, all over the, all over the continent, um, and has just done some awesome stuff way up in the Hudson Bay in, in Canada uh, near the North Pole and uh, just dog sled races, summited Mount McKinley, rode his bike across the United States. I think Eric could go on for a little bit uh, here today and I'm just excited to, uh, yeah, excited to chat and, and see what really inspires you, Eric. So welcome to the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, Eric, I think a, a pretty obvious way, a pretty obvious place to start would just ask you why you do all of this crazy stuff. Yeah, that's a, it's a simple question, but it's a hard one to answer. Um, you know, personally, uh, there's, a, there's the straightforward answer, which is I have a, a pretty simple mission in my life, and that is to tell the story of the last great frozen places left on the planet before they're gone. And so my goal is really to go to places that few people, if any, have ever been and tell the stories of what those places are like and how they're changing and hopefully connect people to those places so they have a better idea of what they're like and hopefully understand a little more about how uh, an individual's actions can impact some of these places that are so far away. That's my easy answer. Um, my more difficult answer as to why is, 
you know, this is unfortunately, for better or worse, how I was built. Uh, I almost look at my expeditions as a form of self-expression, much like a painter painting a picture. Well, that is pretty cool uh, that you have identified who you are and how you want to express that. And uh, hopefully, uh, I'm looking at your, your picture on your website here, and you got a big smile while you're doing this stuff. And I'm sure you've had many, many moments where you have felt completely alive doing something uh, that I think it's pretty easy to, to call incredible. Uh, so that's, that's pretty cool. I wanted to ask you, was there a time in your life where maybe you didn't quite feel so compelled to go after uh, this epic quest that you're on or uh, to try to make the world a better place or just make yourself more fulfilled? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think that's an ongoing process for me. I mean, the things I do are physically very difficult um, and they're mentally challenging when you're trying to accomplish these hard objectives that haven't been done before or like for example biking in Antarctica doing an adventure in a, in a unique style that hasn't been done before um, and so there's a lot of stress uh, physical discomfort fear uncertainty that goes along with that and so if there's a smile on my face I'm psyched because oftentimes that's not the norm in reality I mean I love the trips but they're hard um, and it's and it's hard to get into position where you have the knowledge the experience the funding to be able to even do those and so for me it's definitely been a, an, a long over 20 year process or longer of gaining skills kind of trying to figure out what that vision might be, how do I achieve it, um, you know, dealing with not having any sort of regular income and no money and sleeping on a beach and, and this passion that's driving me but not really knowing how to make it all work and, you know, any sort of other number of failures or hurdles. And, you know, I, I call it a lot uh, like swimming against the current, um, and I felt like I did that a lot in, you know, my 20s and even my early 30s and still today a little bit. But it's really hard when everybody is going a different direction than you are. And what you want to do is turn over on your back and just go with the flow. But I, for whatever reason, inside of me had this passion that kept me going in that direction. And I've often said that, um, you know, one of the biggest factors in being successful is simply that persistence and, you know, keeping at it long enough until something good happens. That's, that's really cool to hear, Eric. And, and you said something interesting there about just turning over on your back and going with the flow. And I, uh, I think that you're, what you're saying there is actually kind of, uh, I guess one way to put it would be surrendering to what you actually want to do and not go the direction that society is trying to, to force yourself, uh, force you into. Is that what you're talking? Can you, can you expand on that yeah, a little bit? I, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an independent thinker. I don't necessarily judge my actions by what other people may think. Um, that said, I do think I'm from the Midwest uh, originally. And there are a lot of pressures on people to 
kind of fit into certain molds. Um, it's a little different now. I feel like there's a little more opportunity to be unique and there's an opportunity to have your voice heard when you're unique. Um, but nonetheless, there are a lot of these pressures I think that we all face, have a job, you know, have some sort of stability, whatever. And those are palpable. I mean, you can feel them. And so it, uh, it's, it's something that can wear you down uh, because it's a constant pressure. It's not something that just hits you and then goes away. And so, yeah, very, very often it would have been very easy for me to just be like, you know what? It's not working out. There's too many obstacles. There's too much pressure for me to not do these things because there was no real formula for it. You know, there was no way to get it done. And so I had to kind of make everything. I, I, I kind of call these expeditions and, and, these, and these big adventures, it's a lot like putting together a puzzle, but you're not given the, the pieces of the puzzle. You actually have to find something, make puzzle pieces, and then figure out what the picture is and then put it together. So there are a lot of steps there, and, and so there are a lot of pressures that um, will kind of push you in the opposite direction. And, you know, ultimately there's a lot of people who are naysayers out there. There's a lot of people who say you can't do something. No, Eric, that sounds really cool. And I want to get back, uh, to, I want to get back to this in a moment about what advice that you might have to someone who is, you know, it doesn't matter what you're trying to do in your life. This is very applicable to anybody trying to do something just a little bit differently, whether it's start a business, whether it's do something that's never been done before, you just have your own side project or you have an interest in saving the polar ice caps, etc. Well, you know where you are and you know where you want to go and then you have to then figure it, figure it out. Uh, I, for example, I used to have a, a friend who started, well, I still do have a friend uh, who started a sunglasses company and people used to ask him all the time and they're like, so what did you do? Just call China and say, hey, I need these built? And no, we just had to figure it out. Um, and so I, I always think of that example. And that's yeah. obviously something like there's no map to the, to the South Pole, or maybe there is. I don't know. I've never, no. I've never looked. But uh, yeah, you're, you're creating the own, your own map uh, for your whole life in general. Um, but Eric, I wanted to, to go back a little bit and just really hear your story and um, maybe if you could walk us through the progression of how this became your life, I think that would be very interesting to hear. Yeah, you know, I like I said, I grew up in the Midwest in Wisconsin and I, I always call myself like probably the most average person you could probably ever meet. You know, I wasn't the smartest person around. I wasn't the fastest person on my soccer team, you know, I was probably one of the slower ones. Um, I enjoyed being outside. My family did, you know, some camping trips as a kid. And I really had a, a strong, strong connection to wild areas. Um, but I didn't know, like, I didn't know what to do with that. I just knew that I enjoyed being outside and was trying to find adventure in any way I could. I, I was an avid biker and bike racer. Um, and that afforded me the ability to get out and explore the area which I was in on my own, on my own terms. And so, you know, I was in eighth grade and I would go ride my bike for 60 or 70 or 80 miles around and, and figure things out and have a map. And, um, and then getting older, just trying to do some more of my own trips, but really never with the thought of, okay, this is going to be a career only with the thought of, I really enjoy being out in the wilderness. I like 
um, you know, these big spaces. I like how I feel out here. Um, I had read a lot of, of kind of expedition journals and adventure stories as a kid and as an adult as well. And so I, I had that idea in my head, but it was just a really like trying to gain experiences that I thought were, um, you know, interesting where I was in bigger areas of wilderness. And so when I got out of college, I got a volunteer job as a backcountry ranger in Alaska. I mean, I wasn't getting paid anything, but I didn't care. I was in Alaska and I was like in a two million acre wildlife refuge and we were going around in canoes and, and, uh, hiking and rafts and flying. And it was incredible. And I was howling at wolves and seeing grizzly bears and getting chased by moose and those kind of experiences. Experiences. And so, you know, after that, I realized like, hey, there's a lot of really awesome opportunities. If you're willing to kind of accept that money isn't necessarily your driving force and stability is not as important, you can do some cool things. And so I spent the next several years really involved with a, diff- a bunch of different seasonal jobs, whether it was, um, you know, guiding whitewater trips in Colorado, being a dog musher in northern Minnesota, riding my bike across the United States, you know, just trying to find things that I felt were interesting and compelling and adventure with this idea of, like, how can I be out longer? Um, the hard part for me was I was flat broke. I didn't have any health insurance. I didn't have car insurance for my car. You know, I had student loans to pay off, and I was just like, man, I can't make any money at this. And so I actually started working on a master's degree and took a job teaching um, at an environmental center uh, for several years, which was a really important part of where I'm at now because it helped develop some of my uh, teaching skills and my speaking skills as well as my writing skills and just overall organizational things. But when I found myself, like, doing our ropes course without a harness on and, and canoeing the river at flood stage, I realized it was time for me to like seriously get back into expeditions. And so got into dog sledding again and, and started doing some expeditions with dog sledding and racing. And, and from there, um, kind of got into my first, uh, North pole expedition, which we started planning for in 2002. Wow. That, uh, that's, that's pretty awesome, Eric. And, I feel like you just looked around and you said, hey, what is it that I like to do? What makes me, you know, feel alive, right? When I'm out in these big wide open spaces surrounded by by mountains and snow and glaciers and these places that there are, there's probably not a whole nother soul around anywhere. And how can I make this, how can I make this my life? Um, and my question for you then getting back to the advice part, if somebody out there is listening and they want to go from point A to point B, they have this thing that really is uh, a passion of theirs, an interest of theirs, but they want to go out and pursue it. Do you have any advice for them specifically? Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough world out there today. It's again, it's a lot different than when, when I was younger, but, uh, and I get that question a lot because people are like, Oh, you're so lucky to do what you do. And my, my reply is be careful what you wish for. Cause it, because it might come true. There's a lot of hard work that goes into what I do and it's, you know, seeing the end result is the process is a long process and so you know i think the first comment is it's not necessarily a to b right now um it's like a to y or a to m you know there are a lot of steps in there and i think part of it is just become in love with the process because you may end up somewhere slightly different than where you started and and that's okay um 
that said, also, that path to the B may require a lot more steps than just one. So you have to realize that it, it's going to take a while. And I think that's one of my most prominent pieces of advice is, like, put it in your time. Like, it's really valuable to have a good voice, to have a level of expertise at something. And that that doesn't come overnight. That comes with hard work and kind of different styles of jobs, potentially different experiences. Um, and then what you're able to do is put all those things together in a way that you can cherry pick the best insights that you've gotten out of each one of those experiences into that thing that you really want to do. Um, I think my other piece of advice is, uh, you know, if you want something bad enough, you just have to stick with it. Like I think people can get very discouraged at the, the naysayers or the, the obstacles and what I've learned is, like, if you look at a little bigger scale of those obstacles, they're not an end. They're just a small bump or an opportunity to learn something and then modify your plan and keep going. Um, and so just understanding that, like, you can use some of those as maybe a short-term learning opportunity um, rather than an endpoint, and you can still focus on your long-term goal. Well, I really, I really like that, Eric. And you said something uh, about the process. And this is something that I've heard from a number of very successful people, including people who enjoy the outdoors, in the book Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Sherard, the founder of Patagonia. He talks a lot about the process. And he says, well, you know what? I was just camping in my van trying to go climbing all the time. And I started making good climbing stuff. And I loved to find new lines and climb mountains. And I had a good community of people that I was tied into who start started to hear that I built the best stuff. And he said, never did I ever want to uh, was it my intention to create this massive empire, which is Patagonia, but he just decided that he was going to focus on the process, and he does it, does it over and over and over again. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the process that you go through that you enjoy so much, maybe when it's preparing for an expedition or being out there putting one foot in front of the other on your cross-country skis, uh, I would love to. I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, the process. I mean, you you kind of have to when you're when you're dealing with goals that are somewhat ambiguous and and far away. You have to remove yourself a little bit from that really distant thing because it can seem so unattainable, and it's really easy to get overwhelmed and want to give up. And so, what we do is we kind of set up these shorter term goals and um, like you said we we focus more on that the, the act of what we're doing versus that that objective um, and so the process is is very important I, I mean I think for me it comes down to um, I enjoy the end result and the process just as much the um, the style in which I do things is very important to me so I'm I'm focused on quality a lot um, and so quality really, really speaks to how you do things, that specific process. And so for me, my goal is to try to do things at the highest quality possible. And when you focus on doing things well, whatever it is, you end up with a really good result. Um, and I think you also start to realize that, you know, just like Yvonne Chouinard, 
that there are a lot of opportunities that exist. And if you only have that far-reaching goal in mind, you kind of miss some of these really, you know, unique opportunities. You know, Johan Schnarr is sitting in his van making, you know, making uh, climbing pitons on a on a portable, uh, whatever they call it, kiln or whatever. And, you know, guess what? He's making some good stuff. He sees that opportunity and he takes it. And so because he was involved in that moment, he was able to do that. And I would, I would feel the same thing. That people are exposed to a lot of opportunities in their lives. Oftentimes you can, you can not recognize them as opportunities because you're too focused on something else. And so kind of slowing down that pace a little bit, understanding where you're at in that moment, understanding that, that, you know, this, this thing on the side actually may become the new, the new thing. And so you look at the line of your life and it's not a straight line from A to B, but it's a zigzag line. Sometimes you may still end up at B, um, again, but it's not a straight path. And sometimes you may end up somewhere else, but either one of those destinations is going to be good because you've put in the time and the effort and you've, you've taken some of those good opportunities and you've also really tried to do your best job along the way. No, that, that's cool to hear, and sure, you have these goals, like I want to go, I want to physically get to the South Pole and stand there. I want to physically get to the North Pole yeah. and stand there. I want to physically get to the top of Mount Everest and stand there, but at the end of the day, that split second that you're probably freezing your ass off on the top of Mount Everest, that's not the point. The point is that you love what you do day in and day out. Is, is that safe enough to say? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, uh, there are a lot of times when, you know, I, I always say like self-doubt is my constant companion on expeditions because there's a lot of times when we're cold, tired, hungry, scared, fearful of our lives, you know, almost getting eaten by a polar bear or avalanched out or whatever. Um, but in the end, I'm choosing to be there, and every one of those steps I wouldn't take away for anything. No, absolutely, especially when you put yourself in that type of danger, in harm's way. Uh, the process must be so important. I'm, cu I'm curious, how, how does that translate to the rest of your life or your, your life must be, uh, yeah, sure, you're out on these expeditions for, for such long periods of time and then you try to come back and assimilate to your life. You, you live in Boulder, Colorado, is that life? Is that right? Yeah, uh, the, it's, yeah, I do, I do, yeah. It's a, you know, the transition is tough. Um, you know, the, the expedition experience is very intense. Um, and you're living in direct contact with your environment and everything that you do to live and survive and move forward has a direct impact on your ability to live and survive. And so um, coming back to a place where you can sit in a chair, where you open the refrigerator and, you know, you have every food that you want or you go to the store and you can get anything you want at any time and you can get on the Internet and, and find any sort of information and go visit whoever, um, it can seem like almost overwhelming like sensory overload um and in, and in one sense it, there's a little bit of depression that you go through because you have all these excuse me all these other layers in your life now and that experience was so intense um but in the other sense you know i live in a city i live in a house you know i sleep in a bed most of my life all i spend have spent years of my life on expeditions i've still spent more of my time in in the places that everybody else does. 
Um, but it's it's a it's a tough transition, no question. Sure. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I have a, a really good friend of mine who uh, is Icelandic. He grew up in Iceland. He's a mountain guide. He's summited Denali and and has done a lot of different crazy stuff in Patagonia and New Zealand and all over the world. And he talks about he spends so much of his time in the backcountry just going to his grandfather's hut in the center of Iceland and going on these crazy challenges and, and bringing people along with that with, with him. But when he has to go back to the real world, like he, he jokes about uh, when he has to go to the city of Reykjavik of 300,000 people, and he, said it's, he says it's just too much. He's like the kind of guy who yeah. just has that smartphone, but when you're just constantly getting pinged with messages and Instagram likes and blah, 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 he's like, it's, it's just too much. I just need to get yeah. back to, to where I feel most comfortable. Do, yeah, do you experience that? I'm yeah, sure. There's, there's a beautiful lesson from expedition travel and especially polar travel, where we're carrying everything that we need to live and survive for nearly two months with us. Um, and so very quickly you begin, you understand what is important in your life because you've removed everything else. Do you need a TV? Not really. Do you need um, you know, all these fancy foods? For me, not really. Some people may, but I'm, I'm pretty good on just cliff bars and, uh, and freeze-dried food. Um, and so you understand what's really important, relationships. You know, my family is very important to me. Um, but you also have this idea of need versus want because on an expedition, your, the things that you have are really parsed down to the only things that you need to live and survive. And coming back to normal life, we see how much stuff that we have. And so when we talk about, you know, resources and our, the health of our planet, it's, you know, again, very quickly we understand, like, what are the things that we need um, and the things that we want aren't necessarily the things that we need. So those are, those are good lessons to learn and take with you um, on every day of your life. And I'm not saying that everybody should just, like, live out of a sled for two months. But, you know, when we look at how we use resources and if those re resources are renewable or not, those are important questions that, that we should ask ourselves. And those are lessons that I've learned from expeditions. Well, I'm really glad that you made this segue into the bigger picture. And I love how you say that when I have everything in my sled that I need to stay alive and I feel fulfilled out here and this is this life is possible like this when you take yourself completely out of what would be a normal person's comfort zone, then you realize the bigger picture that these amazing places that you go to are melting because, you know, especially people in the United States use up so much of a, just a huge percentage of the world, the entire world's resources because there's 350 plus million of us living, you know, living this what is a pretty lavish lifestyle, no matter what end of the spectrum you are as uh, as an American citizen, we live pretty lavishly. Uh, I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about the big picture and how you came to just uh, be driven to go to the craziest places in the world, uh, all for, for the greater good. Yeah, well, I think, you know, my goal has always been to connect people with places. I have a very strong environmental ethic. And as someone who has, you know, traveled to many of these places for over 20 years, you're witnessing some of the changes that are happening due to climate change firsthand, and as well as talking with the indigenous people who have lived there who have been long kind of 
relating their observed experiences and and uh, kind of being the harbingers of the of the news even before many of the scientists. Um, but I think for me, what I've realized in those conversations is that those places that I love are, are changing, and I also have found that that people there's a big disconnect in a place like that that really. Um, uh, people have a lot of misconceptions, and they don't really understand what those environments are like. You know, for example, I could probably ask you a few questions about the Arctic Ocean and the North Pole, and many people don't realize there's no land at the North Pole, and that the ice is moving constantly, um, and that in you know 30 years likely it will be ice-free in the summertime, or even less than that. Um, and this is an area that uh, is very important in terms of regulating global climate and the stability of our environment. Uh, from a, a climate and weather perspective. And so, um, you know, I feel a very strong desire to, to help educate people about what those places are like and make sure they're aware of their uniqueness and their importance in, um, in our world and, and a healthy ecosystem. And I found that adventure is a really great way to engage in these conversations. And so it, it, not as a scientist, not as a politician or an activist, but what I can do is tell a human story um, and and then have that be a springboard to talk about some of these bigger issues like what we're doing right now. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, Eric, would you mind taking just a couple minutes and talking about the let's call them the big three that we hear about so much that you have been to being the North Pole, the South Pole, and Mount Everest? Because mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm so curious because, yeah, now that you bring up those questions, I don't actually know. You know, I know that there are lots of, there's lots of tourism now to Mount Everest and that there is a, a problem, I believe, with the, with the garbage and the hu- treatment of uh, the humans who live in this area. And, you know, obviously with the, with uh, climate change. So I'm curious if you could just spell that out a little bit more for what it's really like from the perspective of someone who has been there. Yeah, I mean, all the all the areas are unique, and part of my goal in 2010 with my Save the Poles expedition was to really speak to each one of these areas that many people think are just frozen wastelands and um, kind of represent them in really how they are, which is very unique to one another. Um, so, for example, you mentioned Mount Everest in Nepal and the Khumbu Valley, um, you know, the Himalayas, which is a huge source of drinking water for a fifth of the world's population. And a lot of those glaciers are melting. The indigenous people who live in the Kumbu Valley, where Everest is, the Sherpa people, have, you know, in recent times seen shrinking glaciers and changing weather patterns, and they no longer get snow where they usually had snow. And part of those things are very alarming to the people there because they... Um, you know, a lot of these lakes are just held in by moraines, and so there's a real great danger of, like, huge flooding to some of these areas. And so people are very concerned about the climate changing. But Everest in general is an amazing place. There is uh, a greater amount of tourism that happens. The change, the, the face of kind of that style of mountaineering is changing as well, where it's more adventure tourism versus expedition. But it's also a huge source of uh, income for that economy. Nepal, unfortunately, is a, not a great 
um, government um, in the sense that they haven't had a real, they just passed a constitution, but they haven't had a constitution in like eight or nine years or something like that. Um, and yeah, there has traditionally been a lot of trash and, and, um, and that is actually changing very dramatically. There's been some huge uh, cleanup efforts. There has also been, um, you know, now when you climb, you have to pay a, a trash deposit and bring everything off the mountain. So that's definitely uh, improving uh, the Sherpa culture and the people who are assisting in the climbs. I think there are some advancements there in terms of, um, you know, working relationships and how some of the Western guiding companies are using them and giving them proper training and equipment as well. Um, so I think all in all, uh, from a tourism guiding perspective, things in, in Everest region, the Kumbu Valley and Nepal are getting a lot better. Obviously they had a devastating earthquake. It's a very poor country. Um, you know, one of the best ways to help Nepal in terms of its recovery is simply visiting. It's an amazing country. It's a beautiful place. Uh, the people are generally very, very nice. I've, I've had a lot of great experiences in Nepal. Um, Antarctica uh, is a continent, so it's a it's a huge area, and all the snow and ice on Antarctica, at least most of it, is ice that's piled up on land. And so at the South Pole, the elevation is actually over 9,000 feet. There's over two miles of ice at the South Pole. And so Antarctica is the driest, windiest, um, coldest place on our planet. And, you know, a lot of the changes that we've seen to do climate change have not been on the interior of Antarctica, but more on the perimeter with some of these big ice shelves um, um, breaking off. And then again, you have the Arctic Ocean, which is an ocean. So all the ice in the Arctic is floating on water. And, uh, you know, it's changing dramatically too. Uh, the the kind of extent and volume of ice is becoming less and less every year. Uh, that's that's incredible to hear. And uh, yeah, there are definitely things that I didn't know. I had I knew there are mountain ranges in Antarctica, of course, but I had no idea. You say the South Pole is actually at an elevation of nine thousand feet. Yeah, the entire Antarctic continent is covered by about a half mile, on average, a half mile sheet thick of ice, but it's a big ice cap and uh, or like a big slow-moving glacier. Yeah, and so at the South Pole, there's over two miles of ice. That snow just piles up year after year after year after year. Wow, uh, sure. Yeah, that's going to be close to 10,000 feet. I'd never th I've never thought of it like that. Um, yeah. No, that that's really cool. And I wanted to... Uh, hear your opinion really I, I loved how you said the best way that we can actually help a country like Nepal is to visit it and uh, I'm curious to your thoughts on how when you, you've been visiting places now for for over 20 years and in some cases and I don't know how long you've been going to Nepal but when you see these kind of changes uh, especially at a place like Mount Everest where you know, you'll hear you'll hear climbers say, "Well, as as you alluded to, okay, it's not so much so much an expedition. There is a map straight up, and there are lines, and everybody knows how to get to the top, kind of kind of thing." Um, yeah. But I'm curious as to how. Uh, let's take Iceland for an example. This is a little country of 350,000 people that close to a million people visited last year. And well, that's going to create a huge environmental footprint. And, uh, and I feel 
partly responsible for that because I bring people to, to Iceland and um, we try to do it in the most sustainable way possible. But I'm, I'm curious as to what your feelings are where you see an area all of a sudden uh, improve economically, um, but you have to balance that environmental footprint. And then sometimes you're going to go back to a place and it's it's going to look a little bit more touristy. There's There might be a, a coach bus sitting in front of yeah. uh, that glacier. I'm curious what how, what your thoughts are on that kind of thing. Yeah, well, there's no, there's no question that everything we do as individuals has an impact. Um, and so it's up to us to, to be as responsible as we can with our travel and whether it's you know, something as simple as buying carbon offsets or some supporting some organizations that are doing some sort of good work. Um, th- those are important aspects, I think, that we should factor in and just be kind of responsible recreators, you know, understanding about the area, being responsible ourselves, even not necessarily getting into a situation that might be over our head where we need a, a rescue. Those things are all important in terms of any sort of travel, international travel or, or adventure travel. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately I think awareness of place and especially for us in America, having an awareness of the greater planet and what different cultures are like, what different environments are like can only hopefully improve our world perspective and, um, affect us in a positive way where we take that information back. Is it, is, you know, is it, a direct, like, oh, yeah, the world is now safe because everybody went on vacation to this place? Probably not. But uh, I think we have to focus on some of those incremental changes. And if, you know, if we can all do our part um, to either educate or be responsible for ourselves, there's an opportunity to do, to do good things. And I think if you look at, like, places like Africa and even some places in Asia where some of these wildlife populations were decimated if on the verge of extinction, tourism has been a big factor in providing um, financial resources to aid in that recovery. Absolutely. And uh, you'll even hear the argument from big game hunters that they are one of the largest supporters of actually saving the environment. And uh, yeah, it sounds, it sounds a little bit twisted, but that's, that's definitely an argument that you hear. And uh, I, I completely agree when we go to Iceland with our travelers and we stand on that glacier where they filmed the documentary Chasing Ice and you see you know, the stick in the ground that shows you how much it's melted or I come back, you know, I go back every year and in the last three years, I've seen all of a sudden there is a glacier lagoon at the bottom of this glacier that was never there before just because the glacier has melted. And there's lots of different factors and as to why it's melting, of course. But when you uh, go to, when you, when you pull up into the parking lot uh, of, a, of a glacier, you know, and you're, you're, we're there with our guides and we have our crampons and our helmets and our ice axes in in hand, et cetera. And then the guides tell us, well, yeah, we actually have to walk another several hundred meters to even get to the glacier, but the parking lot is here, but the glacier has retreated so much in the last 10 or 20 years. That's why we have to walk across this now dirt. And that's why there's a glacier lagoon to your left, which was never here before. It hits home and you might think about 
opening the windows at night instead of using your air conditioning or uh, okay, maybe I'll try to ride my bicycle instead of burning fossil fuels or maybe I'll buy that hybrid instead of, uh, you know, fueling my cars with gasoline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, I agree. Is it going to completely change the world because we've gone and seen it with our own eyes? No, but I bet a lot of people like yourself are going to make moves that are going to inspire other people to go out and, and change the world. So uh, I really appreciate that, Eric. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. That's, uh, yeah, no, that, that's, that's really cool. Um, Eric, I wanted to, to shift gears before we, we wrap up uh, in just a little bit, a little bit more about your training and, as well as your mental preparedness and your emergency preparedness and what you do. Do you have any practices at home, workouts, uh, mental training that you do? I'm, I'm curious to hear how that side of your life looks. Yeah. Well, the, the, the first thing is, is the physical and mental aspects of big adventures and risky adventures are very closely tied. And oftentimes your physical state can really affect your decision making for better or worse. Um, and so I focus a lot on that physical aspect of training prior to any big trip and actually all year round trying to just maintain a level of fitness. It's not always easy because I travel a lot too. But, um, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of like uh, a little old school in the training in the sense that my trips are so long that I'm trying to just train on this more of a, of a strength endurance um, a component where we do things like pull truck tires around and we do some kind of like goofy CrossFit things where we throw the truck tires up and flip them and run with them um, just to kind of get some, we call it kind of old man strong, uh, just like good core strength and just because we're like moving heavy things. The other thing I do is uh, I'll take about 50 pounds of rocks and hike up, um, you know, to 8,000 feet just right here in Boulder. Uh, a good couple hour workout, um, again, long, steady strength endurance. And then I do a lot of biking as well, um, and running. So I'm trying to maintain a level of fitness all year round, a good level of fitness, and then, um, ramp up for big expeditions. We have to be careful because these trips, I call them death by 1000 cuts because we're out so long that we're basically losing a little energy, um, every day. And so we have to be mindful of our diet and a part of that overall, um, kind of mental state on the trip also involves just training in terms of getting into similar scenarios, whether it's like swimming in the Arctic Ocean and being in an area where we can test out our dry suits and how that works or, um, you know, any sort of mountaineering things that we're doing, just getting more in, in a similar situation, using our gear ahead of time. Um, all those things have a direct impact on our ability to be safe and uh, successful on the trip. Do you, ha do you have any uh, good stories for us as far as a point, a point that you reached where it was just your, your breaking point that you often, when you're home, at home at Boulder, in Boulder, that you reflect to and you say, all right, you know what, I'm having a crappy day and maybe I'm stuffing, stuck in traffic or my significant other is upset with me or I need to, I don't know, pay my taxes or, or whatever it is. And, and you look back at like, 
oh man, I almost died in the Arctic. So that there, this is nothing compared to that. I have the mental fortitude to be able to get through. Do you have any moments like that? Oh yeah, all the time. Um, yeah, we've, you know, I've been in some, I try not to get into any sort of too crazy situations, but it's inevitable. And so, you know, we almost got eaten by a couple polar bears. We had some very close encounters with some polar bears um, that we just basically got lucky in terms of being able to get out. Um, I had uh, another close in, uh, situation in the, in the Arctic Ocean where I was swimming across a lead and kind of couldn't get out on the other side. And that was very scary for me because it was like, man, this is, this is how it all ends, you know, just stuck in this lead, frozen in, dead. Um, and so, you know, I think those things, if you focus on them too much can be debilitating. And what you do is you try to just casually brush them off and, uh, and move on. But I think at a certain point, like big expedition life is really hard and it's really dangerous. And so, um, you know, some of these things in, in normal life, when you compare them, and put them side by side, they're not as big of a deal. <laughs> at yeah, all. No, I can. It, it, you certainly must get a lot of perspective out of all of this, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, and ultimately, like I said earlier, it's like how do you determine what's the most important thing in your life, and that is remove everything. And so, I think what another beautiful thing about expeditions is is that it te- they teach you how to be a better person. They teach you to appreciate the things that you know you may not have all the time or that are just fleeting. And so, you know, even something as simple as, like, meeting up a friend and having a a beer, you know, and having a nice conversation, that's an important thing to me. And that's something I appreciate a lot lot more rather than taking for granted or, you know, time with my kids um, because I know that I will be missing them at some point. And so each one of those moments um, is uh, much more valuable. No, I, I can completely uh, understand where you come from that. Is there anything that when you are just trying to put one foot in front of the other, other to get to the top, to get to your base camp, to get to safety, that you say in your head uh, as an endurance athlete might, or is there anything that just keeps you? Do you think of your kids? Do you say, do you just repeat something in your head over and yeah. over again? What, what gets you to that next step? Yeah, at a certain point, you, as much as I want to stay connected to my family, you kind of have to put a lot of those thoughts out of your head. But for me, I have a pretty simple expedition philosophy, which is just begin with one step because... You know, it's just focusing on that next step and the next step because when things get really hard, that faraway goal is seems impossible. And so you just kind of narrow your focus into the immediate things that are in front of you and you get through that thing and then you get through the next little thing and then the next step. And in taking that big thing and breaking up into those pieces, it becomes a lot more manageable and you can work through some of those really difficult things. Eric, this has been a... a Awesome, awesome conversation. As we as we start to wrap up, I have two last questions for you. Um, and the first one is, if somebody is listening right now and they want to truly enjoy the process of their life, of what they're passionate about, of trying to go out and do something greater than themselves, yet that makes them very fulfilled that they love and they can wake up happy every day. 
do you have any uh, do you have any overarching advice uh, for our listeners out there? Man, that's a that's an interesting question. I guess I mean I think yes, I do, and that is just go do it. I mean, it sounds cliched, but there are a lot of you know naysayers who say you can't do anything, um, and the the hardest part is just to try. I mean, I've always said that with expeditions, the hardest part is just getting to the starting line. And so once you're out there, it's easy. But just like taking that first step can seem really difficult, but that's why I focus on just that one step and not that whole bigger picture. But the opportunities are there. Um, you just got to be willing to uh, to try it. That's awesome. Get the get the ball rolling and uh, start getting momentum and yeah. I mean, it's easy to sit. It's easy to sit in your house and comfortable and say no. Um, we all do it, and I do it too. And I, I always say it's hard to say yes, but the moments that you say yes, and when you try something that makes you uncomfortable or there's an uncertain outcome, the rewards are so much greater. Uh, absolutely, and it's easy to call a friend who you know will probably try to talk you out of it than to actually say, you know what, screw it, I'm going to go out and, and do it and start and commit. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with making a mistake. People think that everything has to be right the first time, and that's not the case. I feel like I've learned much more from my uh, mishaps and mistakes than uh, my successes, and those are now I look at them as very important parts of that process and, and getting to where I am now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't exchange them for anything. That's awesome, Eric. And then my final question, of course, is if people want to get more involved in what you're doing, specifically on trying to uh, keep our planet as intact as possible so that it can be enjoyed by future generations, where can they get involved? What's, even if it's not with you, do you have advice for people who just would like to uh, get involved with something greater than themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think the first advice I always have is uh, goes back to that begin with one step. I mean, I think it's very important that every person do do what they can. You know, even something as simple as turning off the lights in your house or recycling, when you multiply that by, uh, you know, a greater population, has a huge impact. And so that's always my first advice. I want to remind everybody that we each as individuals have the ability to affect positive change. Um, the other thing is feel free to send me an email. My website is ericclarksonexplorer.com. So you can always uh, um, just hit me up. And then I work with a lot of great nonprofits, two of which are Winter Wildlands Alliance and Protect Our Winners, which are working specifically on a lot of climate change initiatives, both from a political standpoint and just an overall awareness standpoint. Eric, that sounds awesome. That's ericlarsonexplore.com. And what was your email address so people can get a hold of you? It's just that at gmail.com. Beautiful. That sounds awesome. Eric, it has really been a, a pleasure. This has been some inspiring stuff and some actionable advice. So I'm looking forward to everyone out there who's listening to just go and do it because that's, uh, you got you to gotta start now. That's right. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
Hey, did you like today's episode? If you did, log on to iTunes and leave us a review. It would really help us out. We try to put out good, free content all of the time. Check out the show notes on under30co.com. Send the podcast to a friend who could use some of the advice. And of course, if you want to travel with us, check out under30experiences.com and 50% off Athletic Greens on the show notes. Thanks for listening.